This is the Video Junkyard Podcast. A place that appeals to your deepest and darkest fantasies. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. From this nightmare world emerges a fearsome half-man, half-ape with the strength of 20 demons. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Video Junkyard Podcast. I'm Joe Peterson. With me, as always, my very good friend and co-host, Eric O'Branson. Eric, how's it going? It's going good. Real good. Nice. Nice. We finally got to do the weather report. We finally have warm weather with intermittent rain. (laughs) Yes, because everybody's wondering what the weather was like two weeks ago when uh, we recorded this. But But I don't know. I mean, I guess we (laughs) sort of jump into it, but like... No, it's just, it's kind of cool giving that, you a hard time. I bring up the weather just as often I as know. you do. You know it. Um, so. <laughs> I, I guess and that's the thing. Like we always do this. You know, we we do the show and it comes out like a week to two weeks later. But this one's actually somewhat topical because it's like a, a period of time right now where obviously, you know, the pandemic and all that shit. And we're I don't want to say we're coming out of it, but yeah, I'm always hesitant to use that. I, I don't want to use of that language. Phrase. Exactly. But I think we are, I guess, to just keep using the same mantra, like we're seeing the the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, Right. Hopefully. You know, the CDC just, oh, you know, a week or so ago, uh, you know, said if you've been vaccinated, whatever, (laughs) you know, Um, which the the meme that said, I wonder if the uh, CDC just saw people filling up cups from burger king with gasoline and they just said fuck it whatever i think there's some truth to that um (laughs) so we're at the tail end of this pandemic right um hopefully and we decided that we're going to review the movies that we're going to review tonight (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think it had to be done didn't it like that's just that this among there's there's a few other ones i suppose but this to me at least in in my growing up and things that i was aware of and saw a lot um, is certainly the first one I think of when I think of plague movies, right? Or, you know, because I, I hesitate to call this pandemic. This certainly is, is worse than that. Yeah. But it's, uh, yes. And, of course, what we're talking about tonight is the 1994 miniseries directed by Mick Garris, adaptation of Stephen King's The Stand. From Stephen King, the master of suspense, comes his all-time bestseller. Containment breach. A deadly virus released by a government mistake. A frantic military willing to stop at nothing to cover up the terrible truth. The so-called super flu does not exist. What did you do? As the plague sweeps out of control, a nation erupts, society crumbles, the end is here. The monster's here! The doctor's here! Now, all that remains, the demon, the prophet, and those chosen to survive. Drawn by dreams of an old woman 
be coming along to see me, won't you, Larry? The chosen ones stream to Colorado to find their dreams are real. Help us to be true to you, Lord. Help us to stand. Las Vegas, an army of darkness assembles, controlled by dreams of their leader, Randall Flagg. Go for it. Do it, Harold, do it! It's time to make your stand. The ultimate stand against the forces of evil. Ringwald, Rob Lowe, Laura San Giacomo, Gary Sinise, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Ruby D, and Jamie Sheridan. Stephen King's The Stand. So, of course, this one's based on, a, you know, Stephen King's book, which, which yeah. you know, we said came out in in the the seventies, um, yes. nineteen seventy eight. And this one was aired on ABC again in 1994. So they had already kind of updated it for the times. Um, right. But uh, so I guess as we usually do, what, what was your first exposure to this one? Um, this one I, I was exposed to conventionally. Like I watched this when it was on television. Um, I was already aware of Stephen King and I was already starting to read some of his books at the time. And this was probably the first one that I saw advertising for. Like, I was aware of it coming, and I was all set up and had my, my blank VHS tape ready to record and edit out the commercials like I always used to do when I was a kid. And, and then did have the, I had that tape for years, and it was like my way of watching this over and over again. But, yeah, so I think I saw this, you know, in a similar way to most people who saw it upon broadcast. And that's kind of an, kind of an interesting... Um, I would say it's the first time we've run into that on the podcast, but for me, uh, due to my you know parents being a little bit of uh, uh, sticklers for uh, not letting me watch like R-rated and uh, things they deemed to be inappropriate when I was a kid, it's it's rare that uh, stuff we're talking about on the show I saw in like in real time when it was current, and this one is one of them. So that's okay. <laughs> uh, I think I because it was too. on broadcast TV, it was okay, I guess. But... Right, and I watched this one too when it when it first aired and i think we did the same thing we taped it and i would i'd watch it here and there and i mean to be to be fair i still to this day can't hear blue oyster called don't fear the reaper without thinking of this miniseries no i mean can anybody it's great it's like the best use of that song i think on anything well, well besides you know besides the will ferrell sketch on saturday night live but, but that's a, that's a mick garris thing yeah. mick garris yeah. has a wonderful ear for soundtracks in his in his films yeah, he's a musician and uh, a huge, huge fan of music as well. So, yeah, McGarris is a really, really cool, and interesting dude. So, so he really <laughs> captured the, that and uh, Tears for Fears. Don't dream it's over. Yeah, I still is that Tears or for Fears? Cra- Crowded House. Crowded, Crowded House. House excuse me. Yes, yeah. Crowded House. Yeah. Uh, Don't dream it's over. I still can't hear that song without thinking of this movie yeah, as well, which movie, is even even very more effective. chilling. Very effective. 
Um, and have you read? I, I missed that, and we're going to talk a lot about, at least from my standpoint in this movie, we're going to talk a lot about how parts one and two are really, really great, and parts three and four are just kind of very. Uh, they're not King. bad, but they're a little bit disappointing, and they don't quite live. And that, that's one thing that's missing is it doesn't have that like really great use of popular music that the first two parts have in multiple places. Um, anyway, my first my first gripe where I'm going to compare the first half to the second half. <laughs> Probably many times throughout. Well, yeah, because this bit. is a long miniseries, right? It is. Yeah, I mean, eight hours broadcast. Yeah, so it's an eight-hour broadcast. Four, two-hour. Yes, yeah. it is three hundred and sixty-six minutes with Whew, a twenty-eight yeah. million-dollar budget. And, and during you know part what, though, three, it feels like it. I, I'm, I'm going to throw this out right away, just because you've already you made one gripe, and, and I totally respect that. But <laughs> um, it's it's a it's a wonderful adaptation of a Stephen King story, where like the first half to two thirds or so is really really good and then the ending just kind of goes meh and I say that <laughs> yeah. as a huge Stephen King fan even oh, yeah, he yeah, acknowledges his endings are kind of eh I mean <laughs> act three is hard for everybody right and he, he just has I think I mean the guy's got so many books right how many has he got at this point over 50 oh, and God, uh, at least. he he's stuck it a few times but yeah the third act seems to elude him at times so it's, well, uh, I, I appreciate it in the um, the most recent remake of the the It series, the, those two films. Uh, Stephen mm-hmm. King does a cameo in part two as a, an antique dealer, and he he comments on the author character in in It as good book. I didn't like the ending, so he's <laughs> he's very aware. He's aware of yeah. his own criticisms. He, I mean, guy seems to have a good sense of humor all around. About yeah his celebrity and his yeah anyway but and and i think it's it's just to throw it out there yeah this is kind of a weird this was a weird one to watch right now yeah oh yeah and i'm glad we didn't watch it a year ago (laughs) yeah i think it might have been almost in poor taste a year ago but i think we're ready i i hope we're ready for (laughs) well and and i actually I, i i can admit that most of the stephen king literature i've absorbed over the last two two and a half years has been through audible through through audiobooks Mm -hmm. um and i think in the winter of 2019 going into 2020 i listened to the the extended full version of of the stand on audiobook while shoveling snow mostly in wisconsin (laughs) right and so you know a few months later after i finished the book when covid hit it, it was a little weird but right away, even Stephen King came out like on Twitter and stuff, being like, "Hey, the virus in my book, Captain Trips, is not COVID. Don't even fucking go there." Yeah, <laughs> and I appreciate that he that he did that because this is so. Anybody who's not familiar with the Stand, um, it's about a plague that goes across the world that really has like a ninety nine percent or something fatality rate. It's yeah. about the end of the world through due to a plague. Um, and it's it's cringy and creepy at times. It's uncomfortable, especially after dealing with COVID. Yeah, watching the way that the world and it, it's depicted fairly well for you know the the, uh, the the budget that they had, and they did spend a lot of money on this. And go remember this is an eight hour television series, you know, mini series, but twenty eight million dollars over you know for an eight hour three hundred sixty six minute. Um, sprawling multiple location huge cast um so i don't know uh it sounds like a big budget 
But when you start to think about what exactly this filming the stand entails, it actually, I don't think is a very big budget at all. Right. And um, for what they had, I think they were able to, you know, make a believable um, picture of civilization falling apart. And it had enough of that stuff that unfortunately seemed a little bit like creepy familiar, especially like if we all go transport ourselves back to the beginning days of COVID, uh, we not only had, we're dealing with um, the Trump presidency, which I will call a national disaster all in itself. Uh, and we were also dealing with um, the, the virus and kind of being unsure about what exactly it was, how you caught it, um, how effective or, how deadly it was going to be to different age groups and, and, and so on and so forth. Just, just kind of the unknowns about that. We're also dealing with race riots all over the country. Um, and, you know, around the murder of George Floyd and um, the, you know, kind of the political ramifications of, of, of all of that falling apart. And, uh, you know, there are cities on fire. So, so unfortunately there's part, part, parts of the stand that look very familiar yeah. And that I think makes it really scary all of a sudden because it's like, oh, like how, how you know, I can now see the world reacting this way. Like it's this, this, this seemed like fiction. It seemed speculative, right? They call it, uh, as they call like kind of modern futurist black mirror type of fiction, speculative fiction. But this, this seemed, you know, like, like somebody's projection or exaggeration of, oh, this could happen if you set, you put the blocks that you're the, the dominoes in the right place and they all fell in the right direction and you know something like this could turn out this way. But shit, we yeah. all, we saw stuff start to turn out this way and we didn't even get you know this did the virus we were dealing with had a much lower <laughs> incredibly uh, right. Yeah. Um, you know it, it ups COVID upset our economy. Not right. not to diminish the death toll. It really not to diminish that at all. But you know, look at look at the news. People are talking more about the economy than survivors. Um, and and in this yeah. this fictional virus will. is very very different. Uh, you know, like there's it it kills most people on the planet. And of course, again, if you're not familiar with the stand, um, those that have oh, yeah. survived. Sorry, then. Went on a diatribe during your oh, uh, synopsis there. No, but. totally fine. Um, <laughs> those that have survived are split into two groups. Those that dream of an old black woman in, was it Nebraska? Um, yeah. Named Mother Abigail who tells them to, to come see her. And then the other group that dreams of a dark man named Randall Flagg who tells them to go to Vegas. And, of course, it comes down to good versus evil. And it's... It's a, a really wonderful story, and you know Stephen King even brought on economists and uh, a number of other professionals to, when he was writing this to, you know, what what would happen to this, you know, how how would this group of people potentially respond, um, or how would people in general respond from an economic perspective? It's it's, I would say that the book The Stand is up there with like World War Z, um, with really thought provoking post-apocalyptic uh philosophy mm -hmm. um so i do rec highly recommend the, the book and the audiobook is very good too um if you yeah. don't want to sit around and read a you know, 1000 page book um, i think it's a, a the, the special edition does it run almost 1400 like, <laughs> i think so yeah so like oh, the extended edition one which which has become the official version now yeah. you know post 90s when the extended one came out but and I do also want to mention, because I can't help myself but bring it up, that in 2020, so just last year, uh, end of last year, a mini-series on, was it CBS, 
all access or something. Yeah, um, Paramount Plus now. Yeah, now Paramount Plus. Now. Yeah. Um, came out with a updated version of this story as a miniseries that's set in more modern times. And uh, I watched it and I didn't like it, but I'll talk about why as we get to do it more. Um, yeah. I, I, I will say right off the bat that the 1994 miniseries is a much more faithful adaptation to the book than the one that just came out. Yeah. Well, that's what Mick Garris does. I mean, to talk about the filmmaker. Yeah. Um, and we talked about him a bit when our Masters of Horror episodes as the, you know, exec creator and executive producer of that series. But I think what Mick Garris does and why authors like Stephen King and Clive Barker uh, like to work with him so much is he is just dedicated not just a fan, but like dedicated to getting that story on film in the most accurate way possible. Like translating that um, that novel, you know, getting that on film um, to the T as accurately as we possibly can. You know, we make for this one supposedly the only thing he changed from Stephen King's screenplay because Stephen's teleplay, uh, Stephen King did write the teleplay uh, for this miniseries. Uh, the only things that were changed from his original draft supposedly were some stuff that the censors didn't want uh, or couldn't air on ABC television. So they took a few things out, like crucifixions on the telephone lines. and. Um, oh, yeah, there's a lot of that in the book. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's totally non-existent in this version of, of The Stand. But, yeah, the... So generally, what I'm trying to say, if anyone's familiar with Mick Garris's work and the other Stephen King stuff he's done, is that's that's his talent. Is is he's really good at putting something on film um, in a way that is very faithful to the source material. Well, and I think in this case too, that the cast really helped. They they um, yeah, I, I can say just having again having read the book and or at least the audiobook, whatever you want to call it. Um, these characters worked in my mind as I was going through the book. Mm-hmm. This cast worked well, much more when I think back to that book and the 2020 cast. And that's not to say that there weren't good performances in that because there really are in some in some in some actors and actresses. Um, but the 1994 version, you've got Gary Sinise, you've got Molly Ringwald, Jamie Sheridan, Rob Lowe. Um, <laughs> Laura San Giancamo, Miguel Ferrer, Ruby D, Corbin yeah, Nemec, yes, Parker Lewis can't lose in this either. And yep. Aussie Davis, Matt Frewer, holy shit, and Shawnee Smith and a bunch of others. It's Bill Fogerbach from Coach back yes. then, yeah, like, but yeah. yeah. So he yeah, was a big Lowell. big name at the time. <laughs> no, and what then... was his name in that? Um, uh, Coach. Oh, what was it? Gosh, kind of the dopey blonde guy. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he kind of, in a way, he kind of plays the same character (laughs) as as Tom Cullen in the stand. But um, uh, it'll come to me sometime. Doesn't really matter. But it's, uh, yeah. And then what a what a deep cast. Ed Harris as well uh, in the first part, at least. Kathy Um, Bates. Yeah, it just goes on and on and on. So what a cast and the the. The main cast is fantastic. The amount of like people that pop up, like we just mentioned, Ed Harris and Kathy Bates, and even down to like the um, <laughs> little uh, uh, cameo appearances by many of our Masters of Horror friends and stuff. Stephen King, the author, but J- John Landis, Sam Raimi, Tom Holland, um, <laughs> uh, right? Yeah, pop up in here as well. So, by the way, uh, Bill Bill Fogerbach played Dauber. 
Dauber, that's coach. it. Dauber. Okay. Yeah. I had to look Thanks it up. For, I just had to look it up. Googling that for us. Yes. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, there's a lot of cameos in this one. And even even some kind of fun cast members too like uh joe bob briggs has a, a oh joe bob briggs that's the joe, one i was missing i yep. thought i didn't mention one of them yeah kareem abdul jabbar yes kareem abdul jabbar yeah. <laughs> is the monster screamer um i i, I want to talk a little bit about jamie sheridan in this as stephen king's kind of go-to villain uh randall flag yeah the dark man the walking dude whatever you want to call him um who is in a one version or another has shown up in a number of Stephen King stories uh, and has been played by, well, essentially Jamie Sheridan and uh, Matthew McConaughey in The Dark Tower. Those are technically the same character in a way. Right. Uh, um, in a way. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. And also, who, who um, it was uh, Alexander Skarsgård in the new series. Yeah, right? in the newest so. one. And, you know, I, I really like Alexander Skarsgård. I think he had the look down for randall flag but i could say in the book randall flags really enjoying what's going on mm-hmm. he's, he's a bit of a redneck yeehaw asshole at times <laughs> and yeah. skarsgård was in my opinion he played it too cool okay. um he yeah was, he's I, just I, he's too cool in, in it and now jamie sheridan really kind of nails it like He's he's a, he's smiling all the time. He's got the wavy locks, and he's just. I was gonna say, I always got a kick out of Jamie Sheridan's uh, Randall Flag in this, and that he's just such a. Well, I think the thing about him that's the most off-putting is he can be so likable and charismatic, and you could you totally buy into why people are into him, or like why people like are going for. You know, until the cracks start to show at the end and he starts to lose it a little bit. Like, he's yeah. a very charismatic and, like, you, 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 you totally get, like, you, you've you known some people like this. Like, you you have a suspicion, like, oh, maybe they're not, like, the best guy in the world. But, man, they're a lot of fun and they're giving me all this cool stuff. And, like, I could, I could go I, along I, with this for I, a while. I think it's like, what the kids today call big dick energy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like you're cocky but not arrogant. Like, you know you're cool. Mm-hmm. And everybody agrees. And that's where you leave it. Yeah, the the tall the dark man, walking dude, whatever. Randall Flagg is very much like that, and I just Jamie Sheridan really nails it in this, even though it's very dated, because it's it is in a way. But he he's great. I mean, I I think like the I think we're gonna get to this as like part of the review, at least in my opinion, is you know this thing was I've already brought up budget a couple of times. There's there's a lot of things that are dated about this. It's a television production from the '90s, so you know the special effects are a little. So so at points the makeup actually seems to be pretty good like the physical makeup but anytime they they go to the CG stuff is man it's bad but oh, yeah. um the but I think what, what what grounds this what's so good about it is it's first is dedication to the story and second is this cast is fantastic and I think yeah. Jamie Sheridan's what you know he's a great example of what is so good about this movie is that um he just kind of nails it and I haven't read the book. I, I don't know exactly what's coming off the page, but he is such a memorable rant, character, or creates such a memorable character as Flag in this that, um, yeah, he's he's one of these things that I walk away from this movie, having seen it in my youth, and it's seeing it a couple times throughout the years. But like, he's one of the things that are just cemented in my head. When you even bring up Stephen King, like Randall Flagg's one of those first things, and it's not Randall Flagg from the page because I've not read it. It's Jamie Sheridan. So, and I, I mean, personally so, so. for me, I think Jamie Sheridan did a very, very good job too. Like it, 
the character, at least in the stand of Randall Flagg, is a little bit like Loki, and I mean that was like the Norse god, um, which I guess Marvel to some degree, uh, and yeah. maybe you know Puck, you know those kind yeah. of characters. They're tricksters. They're clearly up to no good, and they're evil as fuck. But they they do have their weaknesses. They do have their limits, um, and they underestimate. You know, which is what gives you a good story. Right. Uh, but no. that may be his biggest weakness is the way he underestimates yeah. the other people. Like, yeah, exactly. And there's another uh, cast member I want to mention right off the bat too, which is Matt Frewer <laughs> yep. as the uh, as Trash Can Man. Who... Matt Frewer is one of those character actors that pops up in like so much stuff in the '80s and '90s, and he's always great. So, yeah, so. and and this is. Trash Can Man is is uh, a favorite of a lot of people that have read the, the book because his character is much more expanded and really disturbing in in the book. Um, in fact, there's a whole sequence with him and a character called the Kid, who's like some crazy Louisiana Cajun hot rod guy who picks Trash Can up and drives him half the way to Vegas, and that's a whole side story that. Neither version of the miniseries were willing to put in, <laughs> yeah, because they're they're really disturbing. Um, it's like, hey, imagine if a a mentally ill arsonist gets picked up by a psychopath. Hmm. You know, that's that's pretty. It's terrifying. Um, but yeah, I think Matt Fur really captures this this demented kind of character in this yeah. one too. He does well with it. It's it's a little bit of a He's not given a lot of screen time, but I think what what he's given, he does very well with. Yeah. Um, I think from a modern standpoint, being that he is a, certainly a dis- mentally disturbed character, uh, giving him a little bit more screen time and a little more character development, I think would have been cool. Like, I think that um, it also probably would have made him a little more of a believable slash possibly sympathetic character. I, I don't know if sympathetic is the right word because again, he's certainly disturbed and doing some stuff that's certain, very um, uncomfortable to see, but it's, yeah, I don't know. I could have used a little more trash came in a little more like all we get out of his history here is essentially some like voiceover memories, you know, things yeah. that are haunting him, him being teased by the, the kids and, um, wherever he's from like his hometown and uh obviously he's he was homeless he was yeah anyway yeah institutionalized and all this mm-hmm. yeah i i i mean i guess first and foremost i would encourage everybody to read the book listen to the audiobook whatever because this is it, the source material on this is is great like i would i would say this is one of my favorite books hmm. like of all time is the stand um so i'm a bit biased but yeah, there there are some things like some of these characters could have used. If, if you're going to have an eight hour miniseries, go all out. You know, just make it ten. <laughs> add add some more character development. Why not? Yeah, yeah, you could. I mean, I have a feeling just knowing the length of the book and knowing Stephen King's um, use of characters and depth of character, uh, you probably could have done twelve hours. You could have added another two episodes. You know, like sure, sure, <laughs> but. So what are your thoughts on the way it was broken up? Do you feel like it was broken up into logical sections? 
Because it's broken um, up into four parts, really. I mean, four parts was great. I think that that with a story this big, it needed to be in there. If you go jump over on the Wikipedia page, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but there's a lot. There was a lot of back and forth of getting this thing made all the way from oh, God, almost yeah. right when it was published. Um, Laurel Pictures got the rights to it, and it went through. You know, George Romero was involved with its development at one point, and then uh, he ended up leaving Laurel, and uh, Richard Rubenstein kind of picked it up, and uh, it eventually became this miniseries for ABC TV. But um, so again, yeah, Stephen King was very, very apprehensive to license this and he only licensed it because of his relationship with Richard Rubenstein and George Romero um because he trusted them as filmmakers and as people that would do justice to it but yeah they were trying to figure out like how do we make this into a movie is it one movie we can do a long you know a three four hour film or do we break it into a couple of films a film series and then eventually um you know after it was a big hit uh Salem's Lot and it on television um the idea came around like, oh, well, we could do it as, you know, a TV miniseries, and then we, we could get a little that little more screen time to kind of develop everything. So, um, yeah, I think the four parts is appropriate for the, the kind of, like, dense narrative that it is. And my, my gripe that I'm getting to <laughs> is that uh, I do feel like it's top-heavy. Like, all the really, really cool, really scary stuff, I think, is in the in the pandemic part of the, the, the plague part of the... Um, um so it's called what let's say it's the plague it's dreams uh the betrayal and the stand are the four parts i believe and it the first two essentially are like world falling apart second two hours is essentially a road movie it's about everybody traveling and kind of you know meeting people we're, we're meeting all of our characters we're assembling everybody's getting together all these characters you've kind of followed out of their own situation are meeting one another and and getting to you know nebraska and eventually to boulder or to vegas or you know you're, you're learning the sides you're seeing them kind of butt heads um all really interesting stuff the first two do we call them episodes first two chapters of this are great like this is great television um Part three changes gears a little bit. Yeah. And I'm sure this happens in the novel. It just seems the way that the story's going is it it, uh, it mainly takes place in the Boulder Free Zone. You see a little bit of what's going on in Vegas, but it, it's about, like, them rebuilding their little bit of civilization uh, there and starting to govern and starting to, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, the book does that, too. It's that yeah. third. The third act of the book is a bit of a... Of a slog. My gripe about it is on TV, I feel like the third episode becomes kind of a slog to get through. Uh, because it's the first two are so good, and then all of a sudden that the, the I don't know, the the intensity, the immediacy of like the situation that's going on kind of cools down. And you get a little bit of the more dramatic, and, and I don't think it's bad. I mean it's certainly it's characters interacting and um but when it gets into like its second hour, you're kind of like, you know, looking at the watch, like, okay, well, we could get moving anytime here. Right. So it does drag a little bit in part three. Part four kind of kicks it back up, and I think it becomes interesting again because you are watching, you know, the climax. You're you're watching the two sides, you know, finally meet, and um, you know how that all turns out. It does have the Stephen King little bit of an anticlimactic ending, but you know. We all knew that was coming because it's based on Stephen King, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Again, I say that as a huge fan of Stephen King, but his endings 
Yeah. Commonly and, are met with, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I guess my biggest gripe is that part three does, you start to feel the length of the whole piece, especially when I'm watching it. Now I didn't sit down and watch all six hours of this thing at once, but I watched it like pretty quickly in succession. I wasn't, you know, um, and I don't remember, do you remember how this aired? Was this weekly or was it four nights in a row? I think it was weekly. Was it? Okay. Yeah. So, I believe so. that I think maybe you wouldn't have felt that as strongly as you do watching it the way I watched it. Um, but anyway, yeah. So to answer your, your question from many minutes ago at this point, the, uh, yeah, I think it does fall off a little bit in part three. Part three hurt a little bit, just um, just in context of the movie. This is not a criticism of the novel, because I think novels and movies are very different things. Um, in context of the movie, I'm not sure we needed the depth to which they went into the Boulder Free Zone story. Uh, I feel like we could have trimmed that, a little bit of that back. I also wish we would have gotten, if we're going to do that, I wish we would have gotten counterpoint depth of the Vegas story. Yeah. Um, get to see a little bit of that going on because we really don't get any of that until part four. They keep Vegas a secret until part four. And it seems so much, it seems just as interesting, honestly. So I don't know. This, uh... And knowing Stephen King, I, I'm sure having not read the novel, like I, you, I'm, I'm guessing you get some of that. Maybe I'm wrong. Because I know how faithful McGarris is. So maybe I'm wrong. But... Not as much. <laughs> Again, you yeah. get much more. You get some of what's going on in Vegas, but not yeah. nearly as much. The The Vegas stuff is, is largely more, and this is in the miniseries as well, more discussions about the offense. Yeah. Um, about, you know, like the suspicion of, oh, those people from Boulder are here, possibly, you know, uh, spies and whatnot. But you, you don't get much more in the book about what's going on in Vegas than you, than you do in the miniseries. Yeah. So, and that's, so, I mean, with, without adding a bunch of stuff to the source material, they just kind of followed along, which I guess is fine. Yeah. But, um, did, do you find, yeah, I, mean, I, I think, I, I was just going to ask, do you have any parts of this that you find particularly disturbing? And, I'm, and I say that even yeah. beyond COVID. <laughs> yes. And I'll tell you the number one um, creepiest scene in this whole thing. It's It comes from part one, The Plague. And it's when uh, Larry and Nadine have to go through the Lincoln Tunnel um, to get out of New York City. So just conceptually, it's such a great piece of like, I don't know, something you would never think of, but certainly would be a reality in this situation, right? Right. Um, yeah, just the, the way it's the traffic is jammed through there. Everybody's dead in their cars, essentially. It's been a few days. It's starting to stink, you know. Um, and they have to hike into this tunnel, you know, um, that is, you know, by the time you get to the middle of it, pitch black and filled with, I don't know, there's just something really creepy about the whole situation. Not only that, but New York City's crawling with, you know, people uh maybe not crawling with since it's got it like a 98 percent kill uh on the but there's definitely people that don't you know aren't all well wishers as we know so uh -huh. um i know something about that scene was always creepy to me because conceptually it just seems like oh like i i never thought of that but yeah i suppose if you're in the middle of new york city right which is an island especially manhattan island um and this shit goes down 
you are trapped, you know, with millions of bodies just stacked on top of each other. And, you know, three days in, it's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> it's just like, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's done really well in the film. Um, it, they, they get that. Uh, so anyway, that's the first one that jumps out to me. It's probably the first sequentially. Like, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of good stuff. The... Yeah. Anyway, like, what what do you think? I'll get get one from you. Um, honestly, the, it, it, this is a weird one, but and this was creepy to me even before I read the book. Um, when you've th- there's a a scene in I believe it's part one where it's Molly Ringwald. It's either in part one or the beginning of part two. Molly Ringwald and uh, Cora Nemec, who plays Harold Lauder. So it's Franny Goldsmith and Harold Lauder. Mm-hmm. Who you get from the earlier scenes and also in the book that Harold has a crush on Franny. He's much younger. She used to like babysit him essentially. Yeah. And but they're the only two in their town left alive. And so you've got these two people that have witnessed the same horrors, and one is. J- infantilely infatuated with the other and she is not at all interested in him she's going through her own drama yeah and they're sitting in a dark house listening to don't dream it's over that pulls out her record player and playing 45 yeah like on like a crank vinyl and that is just that's a haunting chilling part oh yeah you know like the person and she's got her head on his shoulder and it's it, even in this miniseries, it's very clear. Like she's doing that because she just wants to like have a human connection, you know. Um, right. It's it's because you also find out in the book and then later in the miniseries that she's already pregnant and you know she's scared, right? As anybody would be. But you've got like the worst horrors going on on Earth, and you're one of the last few people alive in your hometown, and the only person that you can confide in is somebody that you you know, but in a very different context. Um, and there's, there's alternative motives, ulterior motives from, from each side. So that, even when I was a kid and I saw like something just felt creepy about that. Yeah. That song, I mean, the, the Blue Oyster Cult song as well, like they're just used so well, like, and they, they always will bring me back to that scene. Like I could be in a, you know, in the in the grocery store or something and that song will start playing which has happened actually um yeah. oh yeah and that's instantly where my brain goes is that scene i could see that scene playing out and so that that's just how good that use of music is and just yeah. how good of a moment like and this movie this this whole miniseries is full of scenes like that uh good stuff like there's there's some you know cheap looking and hammy stuff in between it's not all perfect but man are there's some like really fantastic moments here like and that's one of them for sure yeah yeah um so yeah i i I don't know i mean like we had said before stephen king came out on twitter right after covid hit and made a big statement about like hey captain trips the virus in my book is not covid Mm. and you know that because even the way that, you know, the, the virus affects people is so different than how COVID was. But did you find watching this that it was uncomfortable given the, the state of the world right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely increased my, um, 
appreciation, but the believability of the whole situation was knocked up like quite a bit. Like just because we've we've gotten a taste of like what just even the little bit of a I don't want to downplay the pandemic. It's certainly been a rough year for everybody, but even this you know this virus and the way we dealt with the amount of like civil unrest and just kind of disconcert and the, the the mental damage it did to people and you know people lashing out at each other via social media et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. um so when you, you you imagine like okay well what would that be if it's you know a hundred times worse essentially um what would people be doing if there was no hope left if you know people were literally falling down dead in the streets and it feels pretty terrifying just because, I mean, I think I said earlier, like, because we, we feel, I feel like we got a taste of a couple of those things, a couple of those events that happen here. And, you know, going back to, to my childhood watching this, like we had, you know, we didn't have that context. We hadn't lived through a pandemic or any kind of situation like this. So, um, yeah, so it, it definitely assisted this movie and the believability and just, uh, familiarity of the situation that's it it made it it made it much scarier than i suppose it's ever been and it it, totally different parts i think what was scary when i was a kid you know it's like ooh the devilly guy and you know the which i don't know if he was ever scary he was more he was more a cool kind of and maybe cool is the wrong word but um yeah i don't know i'm not sure i thought a lot was scary about the stand when i was a kid now i now i changed my mind (laughs) I could see that. I could see that. Um, what, what do you think, though, in terms of... And I know you said you haven't seen the new new version. But... Yeah. And I, I guess my question here is, like, in, in light of that, and I, I do encourage you to see it just as a comparison, as well as everybody else. Um, do you think, now, coming out of COVID... on, And I know we're both reluctant to say that. Do you think yeah. that this is something that people want to see i mean because i i just think like when when covid first hit everybody flocked to looking up contagion and watching that Mm -hmm. and i don't outbreak or (laughs) outbreak and i don't know maybe maybe there is maybe there are some data about people that have like gone back and watched this miniseries or watched the new version but uh or read the book like how quickly did this one fly off shelves um do you think that for the new version again not having seen it but knowing that it got really bad reviews do you do you think that maybe those bad reviews had anything to do with just the fact that people didn't want to see this right now i mean not having seen it i would i would say certainly that's a possibility i think it's uh a story that's going to hit way too close to home for the general television audience right now mm-hmm. in fact it may border on bad taste <laughs> to many people. Yeah. And I think there's going to be a lot of people disgustedly. Well, it was, a, it, I was going to say she's disgustedly changing the channel. That's not really accurate because it was premiered on a streaming service. Um, but yeah, just that kind of like general, like, Oh, okay, well this is, I can just turn on the news if I want to watch this shit next, you know, like gone. Um, yeah. I, I certainly think that probably hurt it a bit. And unfortunately, obviously this thing was shot and completed before, <laughs> We were really in the depths of uh, the pandemic, so that's unfortunate for everyone involved in its creation. I think it did probably suffer a bit from that. But I've read some other and heard from you as well. Like, but I've read other critiques that are not related to that at all, and that you know 
there there were certainly some problems with it uh, beyond just its timing. Yeah, because this version actually was pretty well received. Yeah, this one won a bunch of awards, and I, you know what, I hear some people, and I kind of wish Ryan Ryan would have been on the show because he would have been in the age group of people that probably didn't see this when it originally aired. Mm-hmm. So it would be like go, you know, having a, a different. Not having that kind of nostalgic, like, ooh, I waited up and I taped this on TV and, you know, all that kind of... It sounded like we had the same experience in, yeah. in that regard. Um, but to have somebody, like, take a look at it from a different perspective and see what they think. But, yeah, in general, I this is well-loved. And, and it was... I remember it being well-loved at the time. Um, when I bring it up to people, people are usually like, that's the one... What's it? And The Stand are the two of the Stephen King miniseries that people will always stand by. Like, those are really, really great. I would throw Salem's Lot in there as well. But, yeah, oh, me too. Um, that's my favorite of all of them. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, this this one is certainly... It's 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 watchable um, all the way through, even though there's some of the special effects certainly don't stand up the test of time necessarily. But it's inconsequential, I think. What's strong about this is the storytelling and the... Um, Honestly, it's it's performance based. That there's a lot of really good acting on this. It, this it's a it's a treat to see so much great, such a great cast in a television production mm-hmm. like this, and um, given kind of the space to really develop characters and such. So there are a few that aren't are kind of weaker links. I don't really care for Molly Ringwald in this, to tell you the truth. But yeah, um, I think she's one of the weaker performances. But there are some like some character performance of people that I don't really have a context for. That I absolutely love them in this movie. Uh, Laura Sangiacomo is one of them as Nadine Cross, who I, I saw her on some other stuff, sitcoms and, and such, in years after this. But um, Rob Lowe is, I he's taken some flack for this. I think he's pretty great in this, honestly. Um, oh, me too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and just other favorites, I. Uh, Gary Sinise is fine. Um, oh, we talked about Jamie Sheridan. He's fantastic. But I think it's just the depth of the... Oh, Ruby D. We should talk about Ruby D as oh, Mother yeah. Abigail in this. She's fantastic as well. And in fact, <laughs> I felt bad for Whoopi Goldberg being cast uh, because she was considered for this originally in 94. Yeah. And um, wasn't able to do it. In fact, I think she was kind of the first person they had in mind. So it just seems so obvious now that, you know, she would jump in and, and do it. And for and she really got panned. I don't know if she was that bad in them, but her supposedly her performance <laughs> sticks out as one of a the A lot of it was the writing, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's like my big problem with a lot of the new one. But yeah, I, th- I think, that, to be honest, even in the book, the character of Fran Goldsmith is a little, I don't know, wasn't that exciting she, she's a conduit by which better stories are told um yeah. the the character of Stu redmond i think gary sinise was at a good age and and time when this really worked for him because yep. the character of Stu redmond is just like he's he's a east texas kind of every everybody just he's a good guy he's kind of thrown into these unusual circumstances um Ruby D though as Mother Abigail, and this is a hard thing too because they did it both with her and with with Whoopi Goldberg in the most recent version. Is you're dealing with an oldest an older actress, but they are doing makeup to make them look even older. 
Right. And aging makeup is is touch and go in in general. Yeah. You know, um, a lot. Of I it, think it's really good on Ruby D in this movie. It's actually. very good on her. Yeah. Yeah. Because so. it usually you're right. It usually kind of sticks. Like being somebody who has done it before, because you helped. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll go deep into the story of, of when you did that in college with a production I was involved in, but um, it never saw the light of day. Uh, yeah, probably for the better for everyone. Yeah, but <laughs> but yeah, it's tough. Like it doesn't really work, and you shouldn't do that. That's not a good casting decision. But I don't know. In this case, it did. It was. Uh, I mean, I've, the other thing is you can't get a hundred and six year old woman to play this part either. So it's... right, you're you're a bit limited. Um. But yeah, overall, do you have a favorite character from the story? Um, I have a couple of favorites, and um, <laughs> Randall Flagg's number one, <laughs> which maybe say a few things about me. But um, I always growing up really liked Larry Underwood. I am not blown away by him in this movie. Um, when I've revisited it again, so Adam Stork plays Larry in it, and he's fine. But I don't know. I think he he was cool or whatever. He was you know the rock star and all this stuff. So I, I think I was drawn to that character as, as a young as a kid. But um, I don't know. I think and I'm gonna tie this a lot to performance too, just because I, I I I'm a big fan of a couple of these performances. But I think Rob Lowe as Nick in this is is fantastic. He's probably my favorite. Um, but I'm going to throw in a uh, strong or maybe almost a tie for um, Ray Walston as Glenn Bateman in this. I really, really think Ray Walston was fantastic. And, uh, I mean, he was fantastic in general, but, like, in this movie, he's got some really, really great stuff. Well, and, you know, he, uh, he is my favorite Martian. Yep. yep. <laughs> and he was in that show. Um, yeah, yep. Yeah, all those are, are great. The, the Glenn <laughs> yeah. Bateman character is really kind of interesting. And I will say, in the new version, that's one of the really good casting uh, choices. It's Greg Kinnear. Greg Kinnear. It? It's a, yeah. and essentially, yeah. it's funny, because it's like, what would Glenn Bateman, this you know survivor of the plague, college you know economics or, or sociology professor from a university, be like in this day and age? Well, in 1994, it was... My favorite Martian. Uh, yeah. You know, yep. it was Ray Walston. In the new version, it's Greg Kinnear, who's just pretty much getting high the entire time. And it's like, yeah, that checks out. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, like, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, so I did like that. He's a good character. And and he is, I, you know, you were talking about the third act being a bit dry, to put it mildly. Um, in the book, it is, too. The whole, like, yeah. how we're going to rebuild society. But the highlights of that part of the book are the character of Glenn Bateman. Yeah, because that's how you're you're getting the the philosophy and the kind of the concepts. So I'll give I'll give it that. You um, know what I I did not mention uh, Miguel Ferrer as uh, Lloyd Henry, and um, he's he's one of my favorites in this as well. And I like him in other stuff too, but he's he shines in this movie. Oh yeah, Lloyd Henry um, is. Uh, Randall Flagg's kind of right hand man. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it's, it, and it, again, the character is great because he's a bit of a conflicted. He, he's a bad guy, but he's not the worst. And now right. he's put in a position where he has to he's, be worse. 
he's one of those kind of like criminals that has like a whole lot of convictions and morality about like he's willing to commit crimes, but he's got these like like loyalty is one of his huge things, right? Like he he knows shit's going south in yeah. Vegas at the end there, but I mean, Flag helped him out, so he can't he can't walk away from it. Like he's you know. So yeah, he he's a criminal, but he's got a like really strong I don't know if you call it a moral code, but whatever. His convictions are very strong. And um, he actually becomes somebody who is a very impressive person. He's kind of a nobody. And uh, I think the crazy thing about Lloyd's character is you could actually kind of see him being a good guy in a different context. Yeah, I could see that. Like, he's got some admirable traits. I don't know. Like, that's... Stephen King does well with that. I think it's the depth of his characters are, are good. There's because uh, obviously he's 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 a bad dude in a lot of ways, but you you admire a few things about him at the same time. Like, right. So. Well, and I, I want to touch back real quick on uh, the Nadine Cross character played by Laura Sangiacomo in this. Um, yeah, and, and I agree, she is excellent in this. <laughs> Another one of my favorites because you did say name six, right? That's what you said. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I I think. It's it's interesting because in this version, one of the the bold creative decisions was to actually combine <laughs> right. some characters. So in the book, when Larry is trying to you know navigate his way through New York, he meets up with this I don't want to say middle aged but approaching uh, kind of Manhattan sociolite named Rita, and they have a a weekend fling and. She she kind of can't do much on her own, so he has to do everything. Um, and eventually she ends up passing, and it's later that he meets Nadine. And in this version, they kind of combine those two characters. Okay, yeah. Um, which makes for this version of Nadine, especially in the first two parts, uh, a very interesting combination of characters. Um but it works really, really well. Yep. Like it doesn't well in, in the miniseries. So somebody like you know, like who's never read the book, it it works like it's not noticeable. Yeah, and it, it gives her, it gives the character of Nadine in in, in it, the movie. It's really my only context, but it gives her a lot of development yeah. um, because you you watch her change and you watch the way that you know her relationship with Flag, which is pretty much happening almost 100% in dreams, um, just kind of change her and everything about her. I mean, you get the impression from the get-go that she's kind of neurotic. She's obviously taking pills for something that Larry didn't, doesn't really approve of. Um, but yeah, it, it, her her kind of like being the chosen mother of, you know, whatever, the Antichrist or whatever you want to call the, the, yeah. the baby that they're going to... Um, weighs on her very heavily and again she's a she's a sympathetic character in a lot of ways but you know obviously one of the villains of this story um but yeah that, i think that's what makes great characters is that kind of conflict because you you do see that kind of just take everything out of her by the end and, and she is eventually redeemed i feel like so she she does the right thing at the at the end when it comes down to it but she does also participate in the attempted murder of many people, so... <laughs> right, so she's not totally sympathetic, but, yeah. Right, right, but... Complicated. Yeah. Um, abused in many ways, too, but... Yeah, 
Absolutely. I mean, I, so I guess I mean we're, we're just keeping an eye on the clock here. We're we're kind of getting towards the end. Or do you have any any other thoughts on on this or or any anything you wanted to bring up? Um, yeah, and <laughs> I actually have quite a few, and I'm not gonna because we are getting down to the wire. Uh, I'm not gonna try to bring up all of them. Um, I wanted to ask you like what you think about this, and uh, kind of as a work of Stephen King. Also, as a TV movie, and just just the stand in general. I mean, I'm gonna kind of leave the new one out of it, but if you want to comment on that, that's you know, go right ahead. Um, what I've always found unique about this piece in Stephen King is, first of all, it's got the structure of epic fantasy. I mean, this is essentially his Lord of the Rings in a lot of ways. <laughs> it has that same kind of like quest oh, totally. like structure and. Um, Second of all, what I find interesting about it is, like, the almost literal religiosity of it. Because Stephen King is not a person that seems to hold very, you know, traditional religious convictions. Right. Um, but I think the message that comes out of this, and you, I actually find that in the fan base of people that, like, really, really love The Stand, you'll find people that, like, really, really draw heavily on its religious tone. Um you know, that it is God versus the devil, it's good versus evil, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, having not read the book, I only have this movie to go on, and that I really feel like it's a traditional, you know, it is good versus evil, but it is, you know, it's it's framed within Christian mythology, and um, that has always made it stand out to me among King's work because I don't see a whole lot of that in a lot of his stuff. Um, right. Which is funny because this crosses into some of his other like universe-y stuff, like uh, Dark Tower, like you mentioned earlier, and um, but never in this same way where he like literally, you know, talks about you know God and them being kind of prophets, especially the Mother Abigail character, and you know the, that flag is kind of a literal demon. He's of the devil. He's not the devil himself, but um, yeah, I don't just. Uh, I was curious what what you made of that, and if that you know helps or hurts this in any way. I, I um, feel like it it kind of just it is what it is. This is Stephen King playing with Judeo Christian mythology, yeah, um, yeah. and I think it actually it it works. It's and I mean I I I don't keep it a secret that I'm I'm an atheist, but you know I I find Judeo Christian mythology just as interesting as any other mythology. Um, whether I believe it or not, it, it it's very mm. interesting. And of course, there's, you know, in most religions, there's some kind of lesson that anybody can learn from. Uh, this is, I want to be careful how I word this. Um, <laughs> this almost feels like Stephen King, like, all right, I'm going to add my own book of the Bible in a way. Because <laughs> you're right, it's very, very Christian. Um, yeah. I mean, spoiler alert at the end literally the hand of god comes down and smites vegas holy shit yep it's not it's not subtle. it's a very stephen king ending <laughs> it is but it's also very very like fire brimstone Christian, oh yeah. more yeah. or less i mean like they say in the movie old testament style like yeah. it really is it's very old testament um and i, I honestly i don't think it hurts it personally um because I I think it it it's not trying to be preachy. It's a very big what if. This whole yeah. story, book, this version, the new version, are are all the same thing. It's a big what if. 
how would people respond? Essentially, this is a zombie movie without zombies. Yeah. Everything that made Night of the Living Dead good is in this story. It's just a yeah. much broader thing, and there's no walking corpses. Big story, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. And, you know, I, I think it's, a lot of it's an allegory as well, um, just because it... I think framing it in, in inside of the frame of like what what you called you know Judeo Christian mythology um, gives us an understanding. It it simplifies good versus evil, but King plays with that a little bit. His characters are complex, and you do see people that uh, are conflicted about like you know what is good versus you know what is good, what is evil, and you know how how do I what where do I fit? What's my role? Um, and I think especially bouncing off of this pandemic. And our experiences, and I mean our, not just Joe and I, but like collectively yeah. uh, throughout living through that, I think we all kind of had a couple moments like that, you know, outside of the religious realm, but like just as a person, like we're, you know, where what's my role in this? Where do I fit? Like, how do I feel? You know, what what is, um, there's, there's some factioning going on. Just, just jump on social media. You'll still see it, right? Um and and that's what this is about. <laughs> so it's it's a very real human thing. I mean, it I think he uses that framing to make it very understandable and in um in real life there would really be you wouldn't, there wouldn't just be good and evil, there wouldn't be God and the devil, there'd be fifteen different subgenres of um what is <laughs> what it is, but but you certainly saw that. You saw the posturing, you saw the factioning, you saw the holier than thou attitude out of everybody i mean and, and i suppose even myself have been guilty at some point of of that and uh so yeah i think the stand is <laughs> to, to kind of sum that up is like very um current again uh in a lot of ways and that's just you know the the plague aspect of it is only one of those things i also think the good good versus evil and, and the organization of, of people and um Kind of the complexity of what that really means is something to be considered, especially having, you know, just lived through the, the last year of our lives. So, um, Well, you're much nicer than I'll be about it, which is like, <laughs> fuck, I mean, th this is, you, you've got half the people left on the planet that go to Vegas, which is like the American pinnacle of greed and about what's right. mine is mine and... I'll do what I want to do. Because that's Flag's whole thing in Vegas is do what you want. He doesn't want a bunch of addicts. He doesn't, you know, like he'll... he'll... I was going to say, he kicked out the whores and the drug addicts. So that's uh... well, an the... interesting comment there, too. Mostly the drug addicts. Um, but he kept plenty of whores around. Um, yeah. Well, there's, there's there's a line in the movie that about there, there not being any whores there. They expect there to be whores, and they're all gone that's true that's true yeah yeah that's on. um anyway it, it, it's i i again i i, I want to be careful but at the same time i don't i i really do feel like <laughs> i tiptoed you yeah there's I a huge fucking but... parallel here with people that, uh, that idolize over trump and the people that idolize over randall flag holy shit is there yeah. a parallel oh yeah i mean Donald Trump doesn't have a, sh a, a shred of the charisma of Randall Flagg, but I mean they're they're in the same ballpark, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah Trump's definitely more of a you know Floyd kind of character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know, eating rats in prison. He's 
I was going to say he's maybe more of a trash can man, but that's all. Yeah, At least trash can man, somewhat sympathetic. Um, yeah, true. But yeah, I, 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 I agree. This, this has a lot of, I, 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 the, the Christian allegory didn't bother me in this one. And usually I, I roll my eyes at that kind of stuff, but I guess in this case, it, the way it's framed, it's such a big, what if, yeah. um, that I, I do. I think it was a frame okay for the that. story. Like, yeah, you know, the same way I, I could enjoy a movie about any culture. This one definitely works. I mean, do I love the fact that the end of the thing? I mean, I just wish Trash would have set the bomb off. Honestly, it would have had it would have told had the same message message without the cheese tastic um, image of the hand of God coming down and setting the bomb off. But you know, it is what it is. <laughs> okay, I got a question uh, though, and maybe yeah. this is my own head cannon, having read the book and seen both versions. Trash can man, who again, pyromaniac, mentally out there guy, keeps singing this song throughout the both the movie and in the book. You know, uh, you know, Sibylla, my life for you, bumpity bump. It's like an old song. Um, but the big thing, especially when he pulls into Vegas at the end with this nuke, and he keeps repeating, "My life for you, my life for you," which. Throughout most of the book and most of the mini mini series, it's like he's saying that to Flag. Mm-hmm. Is it possible, maybe, that he's not saying that to Flag because he sacrifices himself essentially? Yeah, I always kind of wondered that about about the trash can man. Like, is he really an agent of good? I don't know because he brought that to Vegas. And it ends up being their downfall. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you could read it that way. You did allude to some things uh, that were left off screen from the novel that perhaps we, as the audience, can't forgive him for. Uh, we didn't see anything in the movie that I don't I think would be problematic. Um, but like what? Yeah. Well, I I don't know. You, you mentioned that there was a whole lot of stuff they left out uh, between like him and uh. A guy he was writing. Oh, oh, that's just that doesn't really play into that later part. It's just there's this fucked up psychopath that picks him up, and they have some very uncomfortable chapters together. Um, and that dude ends up getting killed. He gets eaten by wolves, which is a great part in the book. Um, and trash is left to just walk past without being in, and, and flag is the one organizing it. Hmm. But the for the same reason why the the character of Tom Cullen, who we haven't talked about, um, no, yeah, the character. I mean, there's so much. It's an eight hour. It, it is <laughs> like, the character of Tom series, Cullen, so. who is is also mentally mentally disabled. He's he's what we would call slow, right? Um, mm-hmm. He is sent to Vegas from the Boulder Free Zone from the good guys. You know, he goes to Vegas to spy on the bad guys. And they make a big point in the book and in the series and everything that Flag can't figure out who the other spy is. And it's because Tom Cullen, because of his mental condition, Flag can't read his mind. Yeah. So, considering that there's already, uh, you know, that's been put in place by Stephen King, like people that have mental disabilities aren't easy to read by this demigod, Flag. Um, 
I, I've I always kind of wondered, both in the book and in the miniseries, if uh, if Trash was kind of you know going rogue in a way. Yeah. I mean, I certainly think you could read it that even in the context of the film, I think you could read it that way. Yeah. But again, um, that could just be my head cannon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he does he does go rogue either way. What is what is you know motives are for doing so? I think are unclear, but. He certainly goes rogue. He's not supposed to be doing what he's doing. He takes off from, you know, um, whatever it's called, Indian Hills, where they had all the missiles and, uh, yeah, but right. So, so do you have yeah. any any final thoughts on this one, or want to address <laughs> oh, any gosh, other I, characters? I still have like more, said? but there is one more. I'm only going to do one more uh, that I did want to fit in, and it was just a, a great moment. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's Glenn Bateman that speaks this line. It just, it really hit home. And it's in part four when the chief security guy apprehends the four, or the three of them, um, Glenn and Larry and, um, oh gosh, what's his name? The kind of farmer dude that, um, Ralph, is it Ralph? Ralph, 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 right. Ralph Bretner. Um, yeah, the three of them at, as they're coming into Vegas are apprehended by, you know, the chief of security and this police blockade and they're acting really aggressive. They're being, um, you know, violent to the point of, you know, hitting them and, uh, and Glenn Bateman says something along the lines and I wrote it down just cause it just hit home so close to home for me. And I, I, Maybe it's me being an optimist, but he's like, you know why they're acting like that? It's because they know that it's almost over for them. Yeah. And like, I don't know, something about just like the current world right now and like everything. I'm like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sing it, Glenn. Like, that's exactly what that behavior is. That's exactly what the behavior that we're watching, you know, the extreme fringe right wing terrorist assholes in the world right now reacting like that it's the 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 ticky torch <laughs> you know mob of nazi assholes and it's because it's almost over for them and i think that's my favorite line in this whole damn thing now because i thought about it that way and it just like wow yeah that's what that shit is that's what that's that violence that's that lashing out they're they're terrified they know it's over and yeah. Anyway, yeah. So that's I, like, I agree. That's like my leave it, leave it there note on this. But so much poignant stuff in this. It's hard to believe it's from 1978 slash 1994. You know, but well, I think we're living it. I think if we would we did this review a year and a half, two years ago, it it would have felt very different. Yeah. But agreed. Yeah. I, I, it would have just you know it's still it's always been an entertaining movie. I, I like it, but it's certainly taken on some additional personal meaning for well i mean it would be hard for anyone i think to watch it and not get a little bit of that so i guess that brings us to grades which again that's kind of a tough one because you know usually when we grade a movie we try not to grade it by today's standards or by what's going on that could influence a review today but i mean i don't know you're talking about a, a a worldwide plague pandemic whatever you want to call it there's going to be parallels and we've already talked about some of them so if you were to to grade this one what do you think um 
I want to show a lot of love for this, but it's not perfect. Like I said, there's moments of it feeling like a 90s TV movie, especially in some of the special effects. And I mean, as great as much as we praised a lot of the acting, there are certain points in this where it's not great as well. Um, It's also very top heavy. Uh, Like we mentioned earlier, I feel like the first two chapters are stronger than the the latter two. Um, But I don't know. You got to love something about all this. Well, first of all, just the acting's fantastic and in, in, you know, places where it is. And uh, I think you got to love something about the ambition that put this thing on screen, because I think Stephen King was right to be nervous like this. This was unfilmable and they did it. And I think they did a pretty they did it justice here. Um, that being said, of course, I've not read the book, so I, I guess I really can't go on record and say that, but, um, it feels complete. It feels like a very well-realized version and, and the characters feel developed and it just, it feels like a success in, in a lot of ways. So, um, I think I'm going to go with a B minus on this one. Um, you know what? No, I'm going to give it a B, just a solid B. I think it's better that the minus makes it too negative. Um, I think this is a good watch. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I do, I do admit that there is some, you know, being tied into modern, you know, goings on, uh, that make it a little more relevant and engrossing now, but yeah, I don't know. I've always kind of liked it. So I think I, I would have given it that back then too. So yeah, let's go with a B. I'm going to echo a lot of that. As usual, um, I, I think this one it still stands up. I mean, you got to realize watching it, it is dated, but it's talking about something that is so topical. You kind of see through that. Um, there are parts of the new version of the miniseries that also hit well, and I'd say they're the early parts that hit well. My biggest problem with the newest version of the miniseries, and I have no problem kind of bashing it for this, is that it's not told in a linear fashion. So the this version follows the book very well in showing like the collapse. Um, the new version of the miniseries, it's all done in flashbacks, and it hurts it. I feel uh, so. This I do feel overall is the superior so far uh, adaptation of this source material. Um, I'm a big fan of that source material. I, I encourage you and everybody else to, to definitely give it a read or a listen or whatever. Um, I'm actually going to go with a B as well. I, I think, yeah, it, it has some dating issues that are, are kind of hard to just ignore. There are some technical aspects of it that, that are a little problematic. But overall, I think this is still telling a relevant story. And at the end of the day, you've got a great, just absolutely great cast telling a story that is accessible 20 years later, damn near. Um, from this mm-hmm. version and even longer when you go from like when the book came out um, yeah I think Mick, Mick Garris hit it out of the park on, on this one the best that he could so I, I'm also going to stick with a, a B on the stand cool yeah it's it's worth watching it's if you can track down a copy unlike many of the things that we do here on the podcast this one is not available streaming I don't believe anywhere at the moment um so unfortunately you'll have to track down like a dvd copy of it um i don't think it's on paramount plus because they're pitching the they do own the rights to it and hopefully it'll end up there eventually but i was just going to kind of look this up in the background and see but i don't think it is yeah this one i i found it i think at the walmart bin at you know 
or yeah. five dollars kind of a thing and and i've I found watched it, it for every couple of years i actually throw this one in yeah i i, I found it on uh what's oh, it a, a like a mix pack with um the langoliers and the golden years which were two other stephen king um miniseries and it was like 10 bucks or something yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. for all it's, three it's, it's worth a pickup it's definitely worth a watch and if you've seen any uh if you've seen this version or the new version or have read the book or all of the above we'd love to hear your thoughts on the stand especially with some of the things we've been talking about like how does this affect you like is this something you would avoid watching or right now because of everything that's been going on for the last year or i don't know i mean i know that a lot of people did watch contagion and outbreak and and you know library rentals for this one were were up during the the covid pandemic so i'd love to know your thoughts and if you want to share those thoughts questions comments criticisms or witticisms please feel free to send those to the video junkyard podcast at gmail.com or you can find us on twitter at video junk pod uh face not only facebook at the video main video junk air podcast page or the group also pinterest and instagram so any of those places you want to leave a bit of feedback we would love to hear from you and coming up on the podcast we are going to visit the worlds or the realms of uh full moon entertainment and we're going to watch the seminal classic of theirs puppet master followed by trancers which is another one of their uh classic many sequel spawning films um after that uh we are going to look at the classic george lucas ron howard uh collaboration fantasy film willow which uh is one i have not seen in in a long time and have been meaning to get back to mad modigan Um, (laughs) yeah so uh yeah join us for those uh the i know that the the puppet master and trancers films are available via tubi and amazon prime um if you have those services uh or if you are a subscriber like i am to full moon entertainment's actual streaming service they're obviously available there as well awesome and again please feel free to send any suggestions that you have to the video junkyard podcast we would we still are ongoing with good viewer picks we'll either get to them right away or at some other time but feel free to submit those anytime you feel yeah anytime you come up with one let us know because we'll just throw it on the list and we we do get to those every once in a while so (laughs) and we want to thank you once again for checking out the video junkier podcast we hope you join us next week and share around and until then this is joe peterson and i'm eric o'branson have a good evening You have been listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. You just can't let them go? Go. Stay on the road. Keep clear of the moors. We want to take this opportunity to thank you for listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast and remind you to find us on social media on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. On Twitter at Video Junk Pod, and on Instagram as Video Junkyard Podcast, all one word. Want to thank you again for listening and keep digging. Who knows what treasures you'll find in the Video Junkyard? <laughs>